Thanks, Olivia. Well, good morning and welcome. I'd love to add my welcome to Ryan's. My name's Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here. And happy Mother's Day to you. If you've come along as a mum, we've been invited here. So great to have you with us. Or perhaps you're a child that's come along that your mum has invited. So great you could be here to celebrate with us as we hear what God has to say today about greatness and great days like today. So why don't we pray that God would help us to understand His Word as we come to it together. Let's pray. Father God, as we come together today, as we've just heard your word read, we ask that we would hear it as what it is, as your word. That you would show us the implications for how we think about you, how we think about life. And that we would see what you have to say to us and the great hope that it gives us because of your son, Jesus. Help us today, Lord, by your spirit and through your word to come away changed. Amen. If I was to ask you today what the greatest thing in life is, the gift of motherhood has got to be up there, hasn't it? I mean, mothers are great. Imagine your life without your mum. You can't because you wouldn't have one, right? We need our mums. Many of us know how great mothers are and motherhood is because it's something that we've experienced ourselves, either walking alongside others or being a mother ourselves. We've enjoyed a moment seeing a, a child captivated by a butterfly and the joy that that brings and seeing children grow into adults and having their own children. and We've experienced sharing our lives with our own mother and the joy that that brings. I want to encourage you today, if you're here with your mum, to grab a photo with your mum. We've got a photo booth downstairs in the foyer. You can then get a photo together. It's a great celebration of what motherhood is together, no matter whether that's your biological mother or perhaps a spiritual mother, someone who's encouraged you in the Christian walk. Both are great, both good to celebrate. For others of us, though, we know the greatness of motherhood because of what we've missed out on. Because we experience a deep longing for the goodness of it, whether that be because of the frailty of of human life or fractured relationships or perhaps the sting of death itself. All those things leave us longing for what motherhood at its best promises. And what we see is that longing, that desire, that burden, that pain we have shows us what we don't have and the greatness of what we don't have. Either way, what we see is mothers and motherhood are great. But motherhood is limited. Just firstly, because of, well, it's only half the population that can biologically be mothers. And because of the brokenness of the world that we live in, it's even less than that. So the question I want us to ask today as we come to God's Word... The question I want us to think through is, what is great then? If motherhood is great, but we don't all experience, what is greatness in this life? What does it look like to be great? Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. And we get to see something today that is incredibly profound about where greatness is found. Our section starts out with someone we've met before. In chapter 3, we met him in in Matthew's Gospel. He was introduced as a Galilean celebrity, a guy who's gone off the charts and viral on Facebook of the day or TikTok. Everyone was talking about this man, John the Baptist. He was kind of this wild, crazy guy who was out in the desert and dressed in kind of camel skin and goat hair and eating locusts. But that wasn't why people came out to see him. They came out because he was calling the world around him to put God at the center of their lives in a way that no one had really heard before. Calling out people's rebellion, telling them they needed to be washed clean and then baptizing people, not only because they stunk, 
<laughs> but because their actions toward God stunk as well. John was in the desert and people recognized something of truth about him. There was some substance to what he was saying. And his particular role in the history of humanity was to prepare the world for greatness. To prepare the world for greatness. Have a look, Matthew 3, verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He came doing something great, but he came to point to someone greater who would come after him. And as Jesus of Nazareth approached him to be baptized by John, this happened. Verse 14, John tried to stop Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on Jesus. And a voice from heaven, from the sky said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine hearing that? Can you imagine being there that day? Seeing this guy, Jesus, there's a bit of hullabaloo going on about him. People have come out to see the viral sensation, John the Baptist. John says someone greater is coming. Jesus walks into the water and we hear God's voice booming from the sky. Can you imagine that? This is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. If we're honest... So many of us long for that type of experience today, don't we? Wouldn't you have loved to have had a moment where God spoke from the sky and said, Jesus is the real deal, and the whole earth shook, and you stood back and went, yeah, okay, I'm in. Like, okay, you know, that was not a plane with a big speaker, like those guys that drive around in their cars with the music and those speakers on top. That did not happen that way. The whole earth shook with the reality of who this man was. Many of us long for clarity, long for God's voice. If, if I heard God speak, if I could see it more clearly, then I'd believe. I'd certainly keep following Him. Have you felt that? Have you experienced that? Oh, I just wish I had more clarity to make this decision that really God was real, that really Jesus was the true and living God. I just, if I had a little bit more information. Well, I want you to know that what you're feeling when you experience that is a big that lie. It's a lie. It won't work. How do we know it won't work? Because it didn't work with John the Baptist who was standing next to Jesus when God said that. Have a look at what happened in verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison, we're in chapter 11 now, what the Christ, which is Jesus, was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? John was there John heard what happened in Matthew 3, and now in Matthew 11, he's like, is Jesus still the real deal? He has the same experience that all of us have today. See, John was looking for greatness, and he thought he'd found it in Jesus. He thought he'd found the one that God had promised throughout the whole Old Testament, but now he experiences the seed of doubt, the seed of doubt. Part of the reason for his doubt is that he expected Jesus to fit in with his view of what God's promised king would do, rather than what the word of God said he'd do. So often in the Christian life, we, this, this seed of doubt creeps in when we allow our imaginations to define what we think God should be like. 
You know, if God was here, if God would real, he'd do this or he'd do that. And, and we start forming a picture of what we think God ought to be like, what, he th- what we think he should do, rather than letting his word shape what he says he is and what he says he will do. We think this is the good life and God's not provided it. Is he really here? And so the seed of doubt creeps in. Is Jesus really the great one? We let our own views determine how we think God should act. And when he doesn't act in line with our imaginations, we doubt. John's expectation was that the one who was coming after him, the Messiah, God's promised king, would come and turn the world upside down. And he would do it with judgment. He would judge the wrong of the world. John had been out calling out the sin of the whole world. People had been coming out to him and saying, we're sorry. And he's like, the one who's coming after me, he's going to smash it even more. He's going to end evil. He's going to put an end to all of the wrong in the world and everything will be as it should be. Listen to the second half of what he said about Jesus as he introduced him. Matthew 3 verse 11, he said this, He, speaking of Jesus, He Himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in His hand. And he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. See what John was expecting? John was expecting judgment, winnowing fork in hand, separating the wheat from the chaff, lighting the fire of judgment on those who've rejected God. John expected when the Messiah would come, there'd be this massive bang. Yet what do we find? By Matthew 11, Jesus is going around preaching nice sermons, healing people and bringing health to the sick, feeding 5,000 at once with a few little bits of bread and some fish, attracting massive crowds, running Bible conferences on mountainsides, rising numbers of people following him. John's like, where's the fire? Where's the judgment God said he would come and bring and put an end to all the evil of this world? You know, there's so many people rebelling against God, they need to see the reality. So he asks in verse 2 of chapter 11, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? John's issue is that he's misunderstood the Word of God. So often I hear people convinced that God has said something to them, or that God has, has convinced them that this thing will happen or that thing will happen, and then it doesn't, And they feel hurt and crushed and disappointed because their understanding of God's word was poor. They didn't hear what God had actually said in the scriptures. And they made up some kind of idea of what God would do and then live by it. Let me introduce you to George Whitfield. Here's a picture of him on the screen or an illustration. Um, Whitfield, an incredible preacher in the US and in the UK. One of the greatest preachers of all time. Do you know what was said at one point in America? Three out of every four Christians in America became Christians through either hearing George Whitfield preach or someone read one of George Whitfield's sermons. Three quarters of Christians became Christians through God working through this man. That's incredible, right? Incredible ministry. While all this was going on, Whitfield heard that his son was actually quite ill and quite sick. He was living on the other side of the Atlantic. So Whitfield prayed diligently throughout this time for his son. And he says that he felt he received from God an assurance that God would heal his son and he wouldn't die. Convinced of that assurance, Whitfield kept going, kept doing his ministry. And his son died. 
For six months, it said, Whitfield entered into a great period of depression. A little to do with the death of his son, but not mainly. The biggest part of his depression, it is said, was because of his disappointment with God. Because he felt God had promised him something and then he didn't keep his promise. And then it became a disappointment with himself because he clearly misunderstood what he thought was God's will. John the Baptist here in Matthew 11 is in a very similar position. With an expectation of God based on a misunderstanding of the Word of God. Friends, it is so important to keep correcting our understanding of God and His ways by God's own Word. Not by what we imagine God will be like. So that when we do face hard times, we don't carry the extra burden of disappointment with God because of our misunderstandings. We hear God as He is. Keep coming back to the Word of God. Keep letting that shape the way we view Him. But listen to how Jesus answers John's doubts. Verse 4 of Matthew 11. Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Almost every single one of those lines that Jesus says in that point is drawn together from two Old Testament passages. Jesus is referencing his works and actions against something that was promised in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 61. Let me read them to you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert is the day when the Lord comes. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The spirit of the Lord of God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. As Jesus answers John about, is he the one to come? Jesus points John to the Old Testament, to the prophecy of Isaiah, of the the day that the Lord would come. Now the question is, should John have known? Could John have known that part of the Old Testament? Well, the answer is yes, absolutely. Because the way John the Baptist introduced himself in Matthew 3 was by quoting Isaiah 40. He says this about himself, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Matthew 3, verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. Right? He's quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, you see it on the screen. He understood the text. He knew Isaiah very, very well. So when Jesus quotes his works to John in the words of Isaiah, he's showing us a link between what God said would happen when the promised king would come and what Jesus has done. He's inviting us all to see himself through his works, see himself and his works through the plans and promises of God. Do you know amongst all the great and wondrous feats in the Old Testament, there's not one account of someone who can heal the blind, not one. Just something no one else has ever done. But Jesus just says the words and people's sight are healed. Jesus says to John, you've seen my works, you've heard my words. The scriptures tell you who I am. But he also lets John know something else. See, each of those references that Jesus quotes from Isaiah, they actually have a clear section before or after them about the coming judgment, the bit that John wanted to see. But Jesus left those bits out when he quoted them. 
Have a look, Isaiah 35 verse 4, directly before the blind receiving sight, says this, Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear, here is your God, vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming, He will save you. The verse directly after bringing good news to the poor says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of God's vengeance. In each quote, Jesus reminds John of from the Old Testament. He left out the very thing that John was expecting. See, John thought that would all come together. God's judgment and and, and God's salvation would all happen at the same time. But what Jesus is saying is, judgment is coming. But before that, it's time for something else. Now, that's really important for how we understand greatness in a moment. So, hold on to that. That's why Jesus answers in verse 6, Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. See, John is offended, perhaps, by Jesus because he was expecting a different Jesus, expecting a bang, a, a conquest. And he hasn't, he's not wrong totally in what he's understood. Judgment was coming, but he only understood half of what God's promised king was coming to do. Let me ask you today, are you offended by Jesus because you only believe half about what he's come to do? See, whenever we take a half-truth and apply it as the whole truth, we end up in an untruth. You say it again, whenever you take a half-truth about something and you apply it as the whole truth, you end up in an untruth. John's offended because there's no judgment. We're often offended because of Jesus, because he says he'll bring judgment. We love the salvation part and kind of hate the judgment part. John's going, the judgment should come. He's living in this world. He's speaking the truth to them. And he's like, he's forgotten about the reality of God's salvation. It's worth asking us, where am I offended by the Jesus of the Bible? Where do I censor out parts of His his character or His plans and and purposes for us? Where do I I live in ignorance because I, I I don't steep myself in His Word and understand who He is and what He's come to do in line with the Scriptures? What Jesus says here is, blessed Happy, rewarded is the one who isn't offended by Him. All of Him. What John didn't understand at that moment is that that if Jesus were to judge His enemies before He died and rose again, then there and then, like John wanted, His enemies would fall. We would all stand before God and suffer the right punishment for turning our backs on Him. If, if John wanted Jesus to judge His enemies there and then, then John too would be judged. Because Jesus hadn't secured the salvation that He was coming to save. There will be a time for judgment, says Jesus. Just not yet. Jesus came to save those who recognize their need. The poor, the blind, the sick, the needy, each of them recognize some need. Jesus is saying, I've come to save those who are in need, in need of a Savior. And if anyone was to be saved, Jesus needed to die in their place, to be judged in our place before the day of judgment came. That's what John didn't get. He didn't get his own sin and he didn't get the salvation that Jesus was about to bring in. When we cry out today, God, why haven't you ended the suffering? Why haven't you ended the evil? We need to remember, if we want God to remove all the evil from the earth, then we're asking Him to remove you and me. For we create evil in the lives of others 
This, this time we live in is what we call the, the overlap of the ages. Jesus, God's promised king, is here and he, and he will bring judgment. But before that judgment comes, he's giving us time to repent and to come to him. What Matthew is showing us is that the blessings that the Old Testament promised the Messiah would bring, they've already dawned. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. It's the inbreaking of the kingdom and the benefits of the kingdom because the king is here. As the seeds of doubt rise up in our minds, come back to the scriptures. Come back to what God promised he would do through his promised king and then look at what Jesus did and find the comfort and assurance and security that God will do what he says. He will bring about his plans and purposes at great cost to himself and trust him. The answer to doubt is to understand what the Bible actually says about Jesus. Rather than forming him into this image of our own imagination, we need to let God's word shape our expectations of Jesus. Which is exactly how Jesus described their generation as a generation that formed Jesus in their own image. Let me show you the perversion of humanity in this generation and in our generation today. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 16, To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting at the marketplace who call out to other children, We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sung a lament for you, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, they say, He had a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Here we see the perversion of humanity and this generation. They're like, and we're like disgruntled children playing in some schoolyard game, whining their criticisms and voicing their discontent. Have you ever seen kids play handball? You know, handball, the game they play in the schoolyard all the time. I played it when I was a kid. My kids play it now. It seems to me that whenever you play handball, there's always new rules that are made up. New rules to make sure you don't move out of the square called king and you get to stay there. And if you're there, you start calling out these rules. I've, I kind of, I've, I've been listening. I've been chatting to my kids about them. There's, there's rolls, roll wars, doubles, lines, interference, first serve, carries, replays, king's revenge. It's, it's like all these things kind of come together. Um, and it's, then you kind of need some sort of UN kind of gathering to work out what the rules actually are. Because they're like, no, it was Carrie's King's Revenge. I only go down one, I don't go there. And they have a fight. And then someone's like, nah, nah, nah. That's what handball is like. Jesus is saying that's what this generation is like. People reject John because he fasts. And they reject Jesus because he celebrates. Like, you can't win. They reject John because he calls out sinners and you reject me because I eat with them. You hate the preaching of repentance and we come and preach the good news of forgiveness and you hate that as well. You can't be pleased. You're like little kids playing handball. You keep reinventing ways of staying in the square called king. And you hear it today in our society, don't you? Jesus, he's not great. He isn't king. He hasn't stopped evil yet. Or because he promises he's going to judge evil, he can't be king. You're like, make your mind up. Which one do you want? Is he going to stop it or, or end it? Oh, sorry, stop it or, or then bring judgment on it. <laughs> or this can't be true. It's just, it's just too easy to say that people can just come and put their lives in Jesus' hands and just believe it's too easy. This can't be real. Oh, but it's too hard. 
To make Jesus the king of my life, I want to run my life my way. It's like, make up your mind. He hasn't made himself clear. There's been no voice from God. But when he does speak in history, oh, it happened too long ago. It's too hard. I wasn't there. And so we don't give up our lives. Friends, do not underestimate the lengths that we go to to set up our own little game of handball with God. To put him in the lowest square and us in king. To come up with reasons why we can say, ah, he is not king and I am. We love to be in king. But Matthew and Jesus warn us that playing this game with Jesus is incredibly dangerous. The consequences of seeing who Jesus is and rejecting him is no game. Look at verse 20 of chapter 11. Then Jesus proceeds to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So listen. 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have been repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Greatness is not found in making the rules. It's found in recognizing the ruler. Jesus' miracles, the things that line up with what the Old Testament promised, should have showed the Jews that Jesus was their promised king. But they rejected. And so Jesus says in no uncertain terms, woe to you. Not like, whoa, that was cool. Woe to you, man. Some hip hippie from John the Baptist town. No, woe as in, look out. The consequences of seeing my actions and rejecting me are massive. Listen to how God describes the people of Sodom. Genesis 18 verse 20. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of these cities, whatever grew on the ground. At Sodom and Gomorrah it was so evil, so wrong, so serious, their rebellion against God. God wiped them out. Yet Jesus says it will be better on the final day of judgment for those cities that he wiped out with kind of ash and sulfur from the sky. And for those who heard about the deeds of Jesus and rejected him. It's pretty strong, isn't it? To see the acts of Jesus. To hear what he has done. To recognize the things that are claimed about him and to reject him will render us to greater consequences of judgment on that final day. It's so self-focused so of us. So ignorant of the reality that he is God, that in him we meet our maker when we say, oh, I see all that, but look, no offense, I still think I should be king of my life. I should call the shots in my life. To see that evidence and, and to reject it renders each of us to much greater judgment. Jesus isn't saying this to try and scare people into the kingdom. He's saying it's a reality. We'll be judged by what we see. He is the, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no one like him. 
He's the only way to the Father, he tells us. He's, he's the only one who reveals God to us. There is no one greater than him. He speaks and the wind and waves stop. He says, wake up and people come back from the dead. He heals sickness. He gives sight to the blind, the lame walk. He is God's promised king. Friends, don't reject that. Come and look at it for yourself. What that means for us is that the search for greatness in anything or anyone except Jesus is incredibly stupid and results in significant judgment. Even good things. Searching for greatness in things like contributing to society or giving to charity, being a good person, being regular at church, giving to Christian mission, being a mother, motherhood, a godly Christian, trying to see all these things and finding greatness in them is still pulling away from the seeing the greatness of who Jesus is. Jesus says it will not end well for us. This last week... Um, the large majority of our staff team have been away at a conference in Australia. It's a conference of lots of church leaders are gathered together to see the gospel go out across Australia and by implication us learning and seeing how we can see the, the good news of Jesus go out across New Zealand. And really it was a gathering of lots of the who's who of kind of Australian and some international Christianity. Uh, I've been part of this group. They assessed us originally and, and as we, before we came to New Zealand. It was great encouragement for our team and just really in, in, encouraging to sit there and hear really fantastic speakers. It was pretty impressive. And there's this moment in, in, this, in the conference where someone started telling a story about the beginning of the movement, about what it was like and how small it was. and Basically, a story to show us how great God is and what He had done through bringing so many churches into existence. Over 150 churches have been planted in the last 15 years. It's incredible. And, and he talked about um, where he was at the beginning of this, um, at this, at this start of this, this movement. And there was a table and he was talking about the people that were at the table with him. And I found myself sitting there going, I wonder if he's going to talk about me. See, I was at the table at the beginning of this group of people when there were 12 of us gathered around. In fact, the guy that was speaking up the front, I was sitting next to at the table. And I'm sitting there in the conference, rather than thinking about the greatness of God through this, going, is he going to say what I said next? I'm literally going, what about me in this? Then he didn't mention me, and I'm like deflated. I'm sitting there going, why didn't he talk about my influence? I'm important too. See, rather than celebrate the way that God had worked through this movement and the glory that Jesus has got, I was honestly sitting there looking glory for myself, wanting my friends and all the 1,100 other pastors and leaders that were in that room at that point to go, oh, Rowan was there too. How disgusting is that? How self-focused are we trying to find greatness in ourselves? Then I had to think through, if I tell this story, am I just trying to tell some people so they know as well? Maybe. But here's the thing, don't be impressed by me. I mean, you're not, are you? The fact that I think you could be just shows how self-focused we can be. I tell you that so that you might see how insidious we are at trying to find greatness in ourselves. How self-focused we can get. Jesus says it is catastrophic to put anything or anyone else in the place of our King 
especially when we have so clearly seen who he is and what he's done. Friends, what have you put in the place of Jesus? Where are you trying to find greatness in and of yourself, in your own actions, in your own deeds, in your own life? But Jesus doesn't leave us in our rebellion. He calls us in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. The freedom that comes when we recognize that Jesus is the greatest. That he has died in our place and that he's risen again. That he's taken the punishment for my sin. That, that my sins have been dealt with. That the judgment day when I come before God won't be poured out on me, but has already been poured out on Jesus. Oh, he's such an incredible freedom. As I look to who he is and what he's done, I'm amazed. How amazing is Jesus? He hasn't placed some heavy yoke on us to do, do, do like every other religion. Find your way to God by finding this way of enlightenment or by doing good things. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. I will deal with your sin. I will bring you to the creator of the universe where you can live forever trusting him. Is there anyone greater than Jesus? Paradoxically, what Matthew shows us and Jesus points out is that it's in recognizing the greatness of Jesus that true greatness is found in us. It's in recognizing the greatness of Jesus that true greatness is found in us. Come with me back to 11 verse 11. Let me show you one more thing. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Jesus is here. Everyone's been following this viral sensation. And he's saying, the fact that Jesus went out to see, people went out to see John the Baptist shows he was great. So great, in fact, that amongst those born of women, i.e. everyone, <laughs> he is the greatest. John the Baptist is the greatest. Now, this is so profound. Jesus is saying this. Let me try and help you understand this. John the Baptist is greater than Abraham. He's, he's greater than, than Moses, who, who got the Ten Commandments and brought them. He's greater than King David, who ruled God's people and was the king over all. He's greater than Solomon who had all the wisdom of the earth. He's greater than Isaiah that spoke so many things about Jesus. If you were to do a lineup of all the Old Testament greats and you would get, get them in, in line from like the, the least of the greats to like the, the greatest of greats and you, you order them in height order of greatness, right? You have them all lined up, all the greats of the Old Testament. John the Baptist is at the start of the line. He's the greatest of them all, top of the top. Isn't that stunning? shows you how pathetic I was wanting some conference speaker to mention me. John gets a mention from Jesus. I wanted some conference speaker to say something. John says he is the greatest. But the question is, in what way? In what way can Jesus say John is the greatest? Surely not in military prowess. John ends up in prison. Didn't go well for him. David would tower over him in, in military prowess, wouldn't he? He ruled through Israel. Surely not in wisdom. Solomon had all the people, the Queen of Sheba, coming to him, asking for wisdom from him. On what axis is Jesus measuring greatness? 
Well, have a look at verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Jesus is showing here, there's a sense in which Abraham prophesied. He pointed forward to Jesus. There's a sense in which Moses, in all he said in the Ten Commandments, in the law was a shadow to what would happen in Jesus. There's a sense where King David pointed forward to Jesus as as he was Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandfather and from the line of David would come the true king. Isaiah keeps pointing to the day that God would come. He's pointing to Jesus. All of them, the whole Old Testament council of authors pointed forward to Jesus. But there was one at the end of the line, one that would point to Jesus the clearest. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one who stood next to Jesus as he baptized him. And God said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. John the Baptist could point out with greater immediacy and greater understanding and greater clarity than everyone who had ever gone before him that this is Jesus. That Jesus is God's promised king. That's what made John great in the eyes of Jesus. Jesus says he is the greatest because of the clarity with which he can point him, Jesus, out as king. But then he goes on to say this, and it's incredible in verse 11. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The person who is part of God's kingdom, that's come and found rest in Jesus, the worst, the laziest, the weakest, the most exhausted person in the kingdom. Basically, think of the runt of the kingdom, right? That person, the runt of the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. How can Jesus say that? In what way could you or I, the the runt of God's kingdom, be greater than John? (laughs) Well, Jesus isn't coming in to change the axis. We're not better military leaders or possessors of greater wisdom. It's the same axis Jesus is comparing, and it's the axis that matters. The axis that, that signifies greatness in our world, according to God, is the clarity and immediacy with which we can point out that Jesus is God's promised king. The axis that signifies greatness in our world is the clarity and immediacy with which we can point out that Jesus is God's promised King. Because we live this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can say with even greater clarity and confidence, Jesus is the King of the universe. He's died. He's risen. He will come again. Death has been defeated. We we can recognize how easy His yoke is and the burden is and how massive... The burden he took for us was. And we can say, have you seen Jesus with absolute certainty because he has died and risen again? We all look for greatness in so many ways. What Jesus is saying is this. The axis that matters, the place that we find true greatness is in pointing to Jesus, showing his greatness. Friends, this has profound implications for how we view ourselves. Right? The, 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 the deepest Christian criteria for how I understand myself, for self-assessment, for self-identification, both individually and corporately, they're just not the criteria of the world, how much money we earn, how, how many things we achieve in this life, how many houses we have, the number of zeros in our bank account, the number of, kind of amazing inventions that we find. That, that really doesn't matter squat. The Christian criteria for self-understanding, self-assessment, 
are radically focused on Jesus. It's the privilege of knowing him and making him known. With clarity. That's where we find our identity as we point to him, as we use all he's given us in whatever way, shape or form. He's given us the skills and abilities and gifts that we have. Greatness is not found in success in this world. It's not found in in living a legacy about yourself or living the good life. It's not even found in, in motherhood or family or so many other good things that God has given us to enjoy. Greatness is found in pointing people to our King. Have you seen Him? Have you seen what He has done? This is what I live for. This is why I am here. Today, if you're a mother amongst us, we thank God for you. The best thing you can do as a mother is to point your family and your children to Jesus and say, He is incredible. Come to Him. Trust in Him. Treasure who He is. Live for Him with your whole life. The best thing we can do to honor our mothers is to say, have you seen Jesus? I want to serve him with my life. I want to put him as number one, not this family, not the relationships that are here, not my job, not my career, nothing else, but I live for him. Recognizing Jesus gives this radical new identity and purpose to our lives, doesn't it? To live for him, to point others to him. To recognize who he is or even just hear about it and reject him. Jesus says will result in incredible judgment on that final day. But to see who he is and to trust him results in a burden that is light and a yoke that is easy and salvation that lasts forever. Friends, as we come to Jesus, fix our eyes on him and find greatness in living for and pointing to the king of the universe. Let's pray. Father God, today as we hear your word, we're very aware of the realities that as we stand before you, we do deserve judgment. Judgment for not viewing you as we ought, having our own view of of Jesus and his plans and thinking that you, you are here to serve us and our ideas rather than yours. Judgment for rejecting you as the king over our lives of making the rules ourselves, of living lives in that little square that we like to call king. Father, thank you so much that Jesus has come and taken the penalty for us as he died in our place. Thank you that he's risen again to show that death was defeated and we can stand forgiven and that he now is the king over all. Thank you that he will come back to judge the living and the dead and that only because of Jesus we can stand forgiven on that day. And help us, Lord, to seek greatness in using all you've given us to point to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.